We are here for our second case this afternoon. Our file number 22-944, Ulfner v. Goins. And we'll be with the appellant. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. My name is Alex Dale in New Hanover County Bar. I represent the defendant, Barbara Ochsner, who is the appellant in this matter. At this time, I'd like to reserve six minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, sir. Defendant Barbara Ochsner, who I'll refer to as Barbara throughout the argument to distinguish between the siblings here, has been trapped in this case that she shouldn't have been in from the beginning because the trial court could never have subject matter jurisdiction over her, and there was no standing for the plaintiff to sue her. And then even moreover, once the case proceeded and the sole single issue that was before the court was decided on summary judgment, she was left in the case nonetheless, and the case proceeded to a judgment that seek to impose some burden on her after the trial court had lost any authority to act at that point. There is no statute or case that allows a beneficiary of an estate to sue another one, like has been done here, and we ask that the judgment be vacated. I'm going to address... Let me, let me ask you a question. Right, sorry, go ahead and finish your opening. And sure. I apologize. I'm going to address uh, three points, each of which standing alone is grounds to, to vacate the, the judgment. Um, the, uh, they are separate, but they're also tied together in the sense that they deal with concepts of how an estate is, is run through the executor, the assets vest in the executor under Chapter 28A. But the first point is that the plaintiff had no standing to sue, not under Spivey versus Godfrey or any other case, and most certainly not after the adoption of Chapter 28A of the North Carolina General Statutes. Second point I'll address is Chapter 28A abrogated Spivey to the extent it stands for what the plaintiff contends. We, of course, say it does not stand for that, um, and that's not a correct read of Spivey, but even if it is, Chapter 28A took that away. And then the third point I'll address is how the case ended as to all parties when Judge Wilson entered summary judgment to decide the one singular issue, which if you look at the prayer for relief of what the plaintiff was seeking here, there was one issue. And Judge Wilson decided that issue, and that was whether the estate had an obligation to collect from Barbara. And when that issue was decided, the case should have been over. If the plaintiff wanted to appeal, the plaintiff could have appealed. The plaintiff did not. Jurisdiction was lost, and the case should have ended there. And so for these reasons, we're going to, as I will address um, moving forward, we ask the court to vacate the judgment. So turning, turning to the first point, which is the Spivey case, um, obviously this court's being asked to look deeply at the Spivey versus Godfrey case, and I would encourage the court to do so. The plaintiff here is extracting a single line out of that case and trying to rely on that single line to argue that in all instances, when an executor may refuse to collect an asset, the beneficiary can sue the other beneficiary. That's just not, just not so. That's not what Spivey holds. And in fact, like a lot of um, solid writing, you, you look for the key point and the, the, the conclusion or the holding, either at the start where the, the writing leads into that at the beginning and then explains its reasoning, or here as in Spivey where the court gets to its holding at the end. And the holding, we've quoted it on page 14 of our brief, um, it's the next to last paragraph in Spivey. And this is what Spivey really stands for. And it says, although the rule has been relaxed to permit the next of kin to sue the representative of a defaulting administrator 
for their shares of the estate when the administrator DBN is made a party defendant. The court emphasized in, in Snipes Supra that in the absence of exceptional circumstances, this is not the orderly procedure. We are not inclined to relax the rule further so as to, to permit the next of kin to institute a suit to collect assets from a third party during the course of an apparently orderly administration. That is the holding of Spivey, that you must have something exceptional. You must have peculiar circumstances. The sentence that the plaintiff pulls out talks about peculiar circumstances. You must have something like that. And the plaintiff does not allege that in the complaint. The plaintiff did not present any evidence to that. They simply disagree with the executor. And that is not. Is Spivey, is it a standing in the subject matter jurisdiction case? Or is it a equivalent now, you know, it says the sustaining the demur and dismissing the action. Is it the equivalent of a 12B6 now? Um, where it's not a standing issue, but it's a failure to allege the, the necessary elements of the complaint? I th Your Honor, to answer your question, I think, it, I think you could find it as both standing and, and failure to state a claim, but I think, I think it definitely is an issue of standing and subject matter jurisdiction because it's a question of who, who can sue a beneficiary to recover assets. Who has that standing? And does the court acquire subject matter jurisdiction in that instance? And how does that happen? And so there very much is a subject matter jurisdiction issue here. I do think also, if you don't plead it, you have a failure to state a claim issue as well. And I think that that issue is in, is in play here. But of course, we got beyond that stage and, and found ourselves here at, at a, ultimately a summary judgment ruling that closed the case. Unlike Spivey, we have that in the Trump case, right, where there was some communication of a demand and a subsequent refusal. Is that fair to say? It is correct. The plaintiff made demand on the executor, and the executor said, no, this is frivolous. We are not, I'm not going to go collect this. That's correct, Your Honor. So if we're not, to say Spivey's not controlling on standing, what then is controlling on standing? Well, there are a couple ways, I think, to, maybe to answer Your Honor's question, and, and please stop me if I'm not, but to answer Your Honor's question, I think the question you're asking is how does a, a, a beneficiary who's unhappy with an executor's decision, let me, let me how do say, they deal with it? Let me lead you down. Is, is, say, is it a statutory scheme that has come about? Is, is that one way we could? It is, yes, Your Honor. Um, there are a couple ways. First of all, um, Chapter uh, 28A, Article 9, provides a procedure to remove an executor if an executor is not doing something and, and the beneficiary thinks that's wrong. A beneficiary can sue an executor. Uh, Article 13 get, requires fiduciary duties. Article 13 of Chapter 28A, the new statutory scheme, that, that puts a fiduciary duty on a uh, executor. They can sue there. There also, to the extent you might have a d disagreement on a will or you might have a disagreement on a contract that everyone's a party to, you, you could have a declaratory judgment where a beneficiary sues the executor on that issue not suing the other beneficiary, but suing the executor on that I issue. Guess my question then, eventually, uh, potentially looking at a statutory scheme, before we get there, we have a demand or refusal. What is a party's right at that point whenever there's been a demand and a refusal 
and the scope was 5E or identical. Are you saying even after a demand and refusal, a party can't sue a beneficiary in that sense? Or where are we at with the ability after we've established a demand and a refusal? I would say that's correct, that even if there's a demand and a refusal, a beneficiary cannot sue another beneficiary. A beneficiary can sue an executor. A beneficiary can seek to remove an executor. A beneficiary can take action with the executor. And that's the scheme that exists now. Because under 28A.15.2, the assets vest, just like in Spivey, that's not changed. The assets vest in the personal representative, the executor here. So, is it fair to say that subject matter jurisdiction challenge could potentially have been more targeted to the subsequent order keeping the trial alive? Because, if I'm not mistaken, I not a challenge to that order, unless I'm missing something. That order, continuing the case, getting it to trial, I think it was a scheduling order or something, the title that, there, that order has not been challenged, correct? That order, Your Honor, just simply noticed something for court, so. That's not the question I'm asking or the answer I'm looking for. In this appeal, that order has not been challenged in the appeal. In that, or, in that order, Judge, the, it's, I believe it's page 87 of the record. Um, in, that, in that order, there is not, uh, we are not seeking to set that order aside. There's no, there's no party aggrieved by that order. We could not seek to set it aside. Well, wasn't that the order that set aside your, your judgment? It, it did not set aside the judgment, no. It kept, it kept your client as a party. No, I would say it did not. I would say... If you look at that order, what that order said is th think about what um, Judge Wilson was sitting in right there. He was no longer, you know, he no longer had inferior jurisdiction. The session was over. He was done. The, he entered his order, the first ruling that summary judgment was granted and then that all other issues are moved. And then he's got a plaintiff who's noticing it for jury trial and you have the other party saying, no, no, you can't move forward. He can't, he can't sua sponte issue an order with nothing before him at that point. He's, he doesn't have jurisdiction, he can't, he can't issue anything, he didn't retain jurisdiction in his order. So what would he do? What is his only option? He puts it on a calendar. But he says in his order very clearly what his intention were, and I, and I think I would ask the court to look at that, at that order and what it says. So how does the summary judgment, the initial summary judgment, how does that become final if the litigation is still ongoing? Well, my first answer to that is that that order is, is a nullity because the case was over. More than 30 days had passed, no appeal had been taken from summary judgment, it's a nullity. It's over. That'd be my first answer to that. As to the named party in, in that part of it? Well, the, there was one substantive issue. If you look at the prayer, and I'd encourage the court to focus on the prayer of what the plaintiff's seeking, the prayer said, we want, the, we want the court to direct the executor to go collect and that the, the uh, estate is owed this money. The estate must be paid this money. It's one issue. And so when he ruled on that one issue, that's why Judge Wilson said the rest is moot. I've closed that issue. That issue is closed down. There is nothing more to address there. So are you saying that Judge Wilson addressed that as to your client in that summary judgment and included your client to be covered under that summary judgment? Every, every party in this case acknowledges that their claims were derivative of the estate. It has to flow through the estate. So think about 
where we're left if it's not as to all parties. If it's not as to all parties. I'm not disagreeing with that. Sure. I'm just saying when we're looking at the record and the order and making sure that we, we're, we're bound by the record. And so if the judge is expressing intent that that summary judgment in the order is addressed to that party and is keeping the litigation alive in the record with a subsequent order for your client, get us to where that doesn't become a final order and the litigation is, and I understand the argument of saying it was a nullity, but we have it in front of us, so. Yeah, it, the, the, I think you have to look at Judge Wilson's first order where he granted summary judgment, again, as to the one legal issue. You, you've heard that argument from me already. But then he says the rest is moot. Why would, why would my client's motion for summary judgment be moot at that point? And that's what was before him. He declared it moot. And then in his second order, which is on page 87 of the record, he leads into, upon review of the complaint, all claims of plaintiff run through the then estate defendant. So he acknowledges, if you want to try to understand what that second order means, he's acknowledging that, I think, his intent. But again, I would say to you, it doesn't matter. The case was over. <laughs> the one issue was decided. And um, the case should have not been pushed by the plaintiff any further than that. Well, on this is around January 21st, your client filed a January 21st of 22, record page 79, your client filed a withdrawal of motion for summary, or for withdrawal of motion for final summary judgment. Um, and it's referencing back to this October order. Um, I mean, it is. I'm not exactly sure what to do with it, but isn't this some evidence that at least your client at that time, acting pro se, believed the litigation was still ongoing? No, Your Honor. That was still pending? No, and, and in fact, what she, what she says there is, is she had had her motion, the court had declared it moot, and then she acknowledges on, in, in her withdrawal document that the plaintiff did not file a notice of appeal and there's nothing further for the court. The court has lost any jurisdiction that may have existed to begin with. So it's over. So that's, I think she's clear in a record. I don't, I don't feel like she's acknowledging anything to the effect that something's still pending. She's simply acknowledging here's where we are. It's now over. And there's nothing further for the court to do. Because you, again, you have a plaintiff pushing. <laughs> you have a plaintiff pushing for further activity. Um, and that's, uh, of course, something that's concerning to her. So lo looking at Spivey, I want to I get back to the, um, the, the issue of, of where, we're, where we would be left, because I think this is where the court's concern was. We're talking about Judge Wilson's summary judgment order. You have an executor who has been told in a summary judgment order. Again, it, it, it's not spelled out because it's a summary judgment order, but the claim was, if you look at the prayer of what the plaintiff was seeking, the claim was court make, uh, make the executor go collect. And now there's a summary judgment order saying, no, the executor's position is right. You know, we're not going to do that. We're not going to compel you to go get it. And then you have a trial judgment that says it's now owed. What's an executor do? An executor can't close an estate when you've got, when you've got two competing orders. That's a practical problem, and it shows how out of bounds we are with what the plaintiff has done here. And the plaintiff continued the case. You can't have the issue decided one way and then another way and leave an executor stuck with, with two different different rulings. There's just no way to, uh, to avoid that issue. Um, I also want to um, 
address chapter 28a specifically because I do think that, that has changed the universe since Spivey came into being. Spivey's a 1963 case. Chapter 28a came into being in 1975. Um, the prior law required all debts to be gathered. Now, after Chapter 28a came in, into being, an executor is given more power. An executor is able to exercise, to do what a reasonable and prudent person would do in the circumstances. That's 28a, 13.3. And one of those powers that's given to the executor is 28a, 13.3, a7, the ability to abandon assets the executor does not think are valuable. And so, uh, the executor is given the ability to exercise judgment. So if we go back, and this is sort of the line of questioning that I was addressing with Judge Gore earlier, if you go back to the issue of, you know, what, what do we do here? You've got an executor who's exercising judgment. And exercising judgment requires just that, exercising judgment. It's not, it's not a question of, of going down a path always completely in the right direction. You exercise judgment. And so you've got an executor doing that, and then a a beneficiary can sue another beneficiary to undo what the executor has done. That, that's completely foreign and contrary to what Chapter 28A provides. And so the correct action, if the beneficiary disagrees with the executor, would be an action against the executor because the executor is exercising the judgment. It's not against the beneficiary to sort of back end a way around uh, what the executor's done. And that would be an action for what, breach of its fiduciary duty? The that would be the contention or, or removal to try to get in a different executor to make a different determination. Um, that would be another option. And again, it could be a declaratory judgment in certain factual situations. If you disagree on how maybe a will is being read, a beneficiary could sue for a declaratory judgment as an example there. There are a number of different avenues a beneficiary could take. But the plaintiff is asking you to create new law in reading Spivey the way the plaintiff is that there's some new cause of action that a plaintiff can assert. And there's been no case that's ever interpreted Spivey that way throughout all the history that's followed since Spivey's been in existence. If you look at every one of the cases that has followed Spivey, they've all been dealing with something else. They've been dealing with collusion or conversion of assets or embezzlement, things that are exactly what you would think would fit under Spivey an extraordinary circumstance, something peculiar, not simply disagreeing with the executor. And just to be clear, what the plaintiff has alleged in the complaint is a simple refusal. The evidence the plaintiff put on, it's in pages 20 and 21 of the transcript, is simply a refusal. <laughs> the executor refused. The, the executor did not um, agree with the beneficiary's decision, but there is no evidence in the transcript of any kind of collusion, embezzlement, malfeasance, and, and it would be, you know, we're, we're dealing with the public administrator in Carteret County. It would be shocking if something like that was alleged, but, but it's not, and it's not been proven either, so we're not even in that, in that space. Um, I, I want to address the, com the issue we've also touched on already just briefly about the, um, the Judge Wilson summary judgment order versus the Judge Rowe uh, final judgment. There's no way to reconcile those at all. I mentioned the practical aspects of that already. But um, you, have to, you have to really read what the single issue in the prayer for relief is. And that, um, that prayer for relief is, uh, I believe, on page 24 of the complaint. Um, excuse me, page, uh, 
that's not, it's page uh, 16 and 17 of the record, excuse me. Um, and so the prayer in there is seeking one issue. Again, it's all tied to the estate's ability to collect from Barbara. It's a single issue. And so when Judge Wilson ruled on that, he, he, he granted summary judgment. And if you, the, the briefs, you know, we don't normally put the briefs in the record, but the briefs of the executor are at the, in the, in the uh, record supplement at the back. And you can see what the executor was arguing, that you know, this is, his decision was proper, there was, there was no grounds for it. And so when the court ruled on summary judgment, it closed the issue of is any debt owed by Barbara that the executor must go collect. I guess counsel, um, how do we get to that conclusion without Barbara being named in the order? Barbara's left out of the order. Barbara has filed pleadings on her own. Gently to this order specifically covering any claims as it pertains to a liability for Barbara. Not disagreeing with the law as it pertains to the application and practice. But what I have in front of me right now is a initial summary judgment order for parties other than Barbara. Therefore, as pertains to looking at litigation being done, Barbara is still a named party without an order addressing any claims for her and in this litigation. Get me to how this order addresses her liability without her being named in the order. I'll give you four reasons, hopefully help you get there. Um, the first is the parties. I think everyone acknowledges what the plaintiff is intending to do here is derivative in nature. So if it's derivative in nature, it's just like if you think about a corporate derivative case under Chapter 55 or 55A. Correctly, and the, and the company would have an order addressing them being off the hook in any board of directors. So, and they're not going to leave the courtroom. Right, that's right. Or the clerk, without taking her some Christmas cookies, to make sure that they have one stamp with their name on it. So don't disagree with you. But again, they would have their name on that order. Sure. My second point is in that order, Judge Wilson said everything else is moot. The remaining motions are moot, including Barbara's motion for summary judgment. How can it be moot? If what does it say as it pertains to Barbara? Does it say that? It does not say Barbara specifically, but it says all other, and I'll find that is on page uh, 72, 72 of the record. The last paragraph, all other pending motions at this time are otherwise deemed moot by entry of this order. So how could it be, how could it be moot if it's not resolved? <laughs> I would hope that as pertaining to these parties at the top that are named order, correct me if I'm wrong, order granting motion for some judgment in favor of the plaintiff and named specifically. So this is Judge Wilson's order. So the parties that this order is addressing took the extra step to list out which defendants the order is addressing. So not disagreeing with you that that is true for paragraph four as it pertains to Douglas. But get me to how number four addresses Barbara with her not being named as a party 
before this order? Well, the order is not addressing the parties by name in the sense of saying this applies to this person. It's saying whose motion is it? Don't disagree, don't so, disagree with that. But, so we're addressing Douglas's motion. Yes. So does this order, how does this order address Barbara's motion or any motions pled by Barbara? And I don't see how you get past, you know, just with respect to the court, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just trying to help you help you understand my position Understood. with I, wanna, I, wanna I, I don't I don't see how you can get past it being derivative at point one and then it, it being tied here where it's, it's the estate being released argument, but I think we're more at the basic civil procedure because plea and pleading where we don't have the names on the order that we're, we're wanting to see and and I see I'm in my rebuttal time if I could answer I your question well Oh, yeah. yeah. As long as we've got, got questions, we're good to go. Yeah. The other point, if you, if you look at paragraph four, it says all that are deemed moot. The only motion that's moot is Barbara's. <laughs> I mean, so, um, you know, it, it doesn't say her name. I agree with you on that, but that's what's left. And so um, that is addressing that. And then, then the, the third point, um, that I, I mentioned there was another one is Judge Wilson's second order, which we've already addressed a little bit, where he says, it's not just the party's position, but he says all claims of the plaintiff run through the then estate defendant. So, um, and he says in, in the October, in the 20 October 2021 order, this court failed to rule on the merits of Ms. Ulster's motion, rendering it moot by way of dismissal of the estate defendant. So. What I'm saying to you is exactly what Judge Wilson is saying on page 87 of the record. And so I think you take the totality of that and, and that's painting the picture of what Judge Wilson was doing in there. And then you combine that with the practical aspects of this and how on earth does an executor have one order saying don't collect and another order saying it's the debt of the estate that's impractical to administer the estate. And then lastly, I said there's a fourth reason, page uh, 139 of the record contains a ruling from the clerk. The plaintiff had filed this claim previously um, and dismissed, and the clerk awarded fees to the executor saying this claim was frivolous. <laughs> and so um, you've got a prior ruling from a clerk as well that says the claims were frivolous. And so I think you take the totality of all the pieces, just like I'd encourage you to take the totality of Spivey as you look at the whole case, and I think that yields the result. And so we would ask the court to vacate um, the judgment. Does Judge Wilson's use of this cause to start at record page 71 suggest encapsulation of the whole case in its entirety? Or is that just boilerplate language um, that, you know, is modified by what appears in the, the second paragraph about hearing on these uh, cross motions for summary judgment between these two parties? Yeah, um, wh whether that's obviously, I believe, and I submit to the court, the cause here is one issue. If you look at the prayer again, what is the issue? Is does the is the estate owed money from Barbara? That's the one issue, <laughs> and so I think that is the issue here. This cause, is quite often, boilerplate language, as Your Honor suggested, uh, it may be that, but I, I do believe and would submit to you there's one issue, and that this this order closed it all. Plaintiffs didn't appeal. That should have ended it. Oh, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll probably give um, the appellant up to probably another five minutes, so if you need more time to answer questions, you'll, you'll have that as well. Thank you, Your Honor. My name is Wes Collins. 
Uh, I represent the appellee. I'm an attorney in, uh, from Carteret County, North Carolina, with the law firm of Carvel and Collins. Uh, I'm going to address the issues that are set forth in the brief, as that I think is what we're required to do. Of course, uh, the first issue, as I understand it, is does Spivey allow this suit when Goins uh, declined to collect? I'll come back to that in a moment. The second issue, Your Honors, was um, was the first Wilson order a final order concluding that Barbara is not liable? Uh, let me briefly mention that. First of all, the court has already inquired about what was intended by Judge Wilson. Judge Wilson entered an order sending this to trial. I think it's pretty clear, uh, with all due respect, as to what he intended. Uh, whether he counts that as a Rule 60 uh, motion or an order, which he can do sua sponte, it was his own order. If for some reason he had uh, no jurisdiction to change his own order, then Superior Court judges make that mistake all the time because they do amended orders, corrected orders, those type things. It, it's, it's commonplace. Well, yes. Is this an amended order? Is it a corrected order? I, I guess I'm struggling with Record 87 to try to figure out what this even is. How does it fall within our rules of civil procedure? Is it amending its order? You know, granted six months down the road. And we, how do we look at this this document we see at record page 87 signed by the Supreme Court judge and say this is a such and such? Right. Your Honor, as my, under, my understanding upon reviewing the order is of course first we have the order granting the motion for summary judgment in favor of Doug Goltz. Okay, that does not resolve all of the claims in the case because we have multiple claims that are only against Barbara. And we had one claim where we sought affirmative relief against Doug Goins. We sought declaratory relief as to him only. Now, no doubt under Spivey, Your Honor, that Doug Goins had to be a party. He had to be served. He had to be under the jurisdiction of the court. Spivey makes that very clear. Um, I, I've handled Spivey cases, dozens of them. You have to name uh, the executor in these, these situations. So then to go to the court's question, Your Honor, what is uh, this uh, scheduling order and notice? My interpretation of this is it is the same judge's recognition that he has entered an order that does not fully dispose of the case. So what rule does it fall under? As I stated a moment ago, it's not stated as Rule 60, but I believe that he has the authority under Rule 60 to clarify his own order. Counsel, what claims will still, will still be surviving against Barbara? Yes. Because those claims were not addressed pursuant to your summary judgment with the initial order, would there even be a need for Rule 60? Because if those claims were still alive and had not been addressed because she had not shown up? Would there be a need? I, I, Probably not a need, probably clarification for everyone that was intended, because I think the summary judgment order itself left some questions, and the judge then uh, addressed those with his subsequent order, indicating there are claims remaining. Uh, Mr. Goins is still a nominal party, but we're proceeding only on those claims. So going back to your question, I believe that the... Um, 
the complaint in the record, if I may, is on, uh, begins on four of the printed record and turning to the wherefore clause on page 16, first, paragraph two, that the court declare that the writings executed by defendant Barbara Olshner to be valid debts due to the estate. The next claim is the only affirmative relief that we sought from Doug Goins, where we say that the court enter a declaratory judgment directing Doug Goins as executor of the estate to enforce and collect on the debt due to the estate, the decedent's estate, by offsetting any inheritance that would be received by defendant Barbara Olshner against the debt owed by defendant Barbara Olshner, effectively distributing the decedent's entire estate to plaintiff. That was an affirmative request asking this executor to do something specifically. Our position is that when, uh, when Judge Wilson granted his summary judgment, and by the way, in speaking with John Marshall, the attorney for uh, uh, Mr. Goins prior to that motion for summary judgment, that was his primary concern. Um, and, and the reason why, Your Honor, there has to be some practicality here. And I'm going to come back to the wherefore clause, but I think this is an appropriate segue to talk about this for a moment. Normally, when you bring a claim under Spivey, the executor stands back and does nothing because they are a fiduciary. All they're doing is waiting for the court to tell them what to do. This is very practical. It happens every day. There's an attempt by this appeal to make this look like something that is an anomaly, something that's different. It's not. So normally what happens is you have a situation where you follow Spivey, you have to either have allegations of collusion, you have to have a peculiar circumstance, which has never been defined in any case from what I've seen, or more, more notably and, and more, um, uh, more frequently, we have a demand and the executor decides I'm not going to proceed forward. Happens all the time. The executor has the right to do that. We're not saying they don't, okay? And I agree, under 28A, they have, they, have to, they have to be acting in good faith and reasonably. But they can say, no, I'm not going to do that. But that in no way limits, limits either a creditor or an heir to then proceed under Spivey. And what's the difference between refusing to go after a claim and abandoning a claim? I don't think there is a practical difference, uh, Your Honor, with regard to how Spivey is applied. And let me give you a... If, if, well, when, when yes, Spivey came out, if I'm understanding the, these older statutes, under 28, there wasn't an ability to abandon a claim, was there? I don't think that there was, but I don't think there's a practical difference between the two. I think that there had to be, with the older statutes, a reasonable effort to collect all of the claims. And I think under the newer statutes, dealing with the state matters all the time, I think the... Uh, the executor, the personal representative, has an obligation to act reasonably in collecting, and as long as they do, then they're within the statute. Now, a, a perfect yes. Well, what I, I guess saying that you know abandoning a claim means it's it's gone. So just like negotiating a claim, if, if he had decided to settle with Ms. Olsner for one penny. Your client couldn't go back and say, okay, I want the rest of the $99,000 in change, right? 
No, I would disagree with that. From a practical standpoint, there are negotiations on estate claims all the time. Right. But the beneficiaries are always required to sign off on those. No executor would put himself out there with regard to that. That's the practical. Well, th that, that's kind of a, a CYA, but there wouldn't be right. anything preventing their legal ability to do so. Off the top of my I head. I mean, theoretically, if, if the claim was a great claim and that, that could be, you know, evidence of collusion or evidence of breach of fiduciary duty, but in terms of pure legal ability, mm -hmm. that would be, I don't see how there'd be any other claim to go after her if he had settled this for Let's just say a dollar because it's easy sure. to say. I think the word is compromise. I think it has, it's, the word to com it's the right to compromise claims. I think that the personal rep representative can do that and does do that. And you're right. My mentioning that uh, beneficiaries are required to sign off on these things is more of a practical matter. That's the way it's normally done. And it is a CYA. I would agree with that. So I, I guess given that the ability to, to compromise and to settle claims comes along with the ability to abandon a claim, if you settle it or compromise it, that's the end of it. So if you abandon it, why is that not the end of it? Are you saying because Spivey gives this ability to go around it? Yes. Are there any other published cases showing that ability to go around it since the implication or since the enactment of 28A? Not that I'm aware of, but, but let me distinguish if I may. Yeah. I believe, Your Honor, if we were in a situation where Mr. Goins here had entered a settlement agreement with regard to these items and compromised these claims, it would put another layer, it would put a layer of complexity before us. He did not do that. He chose not to collect them. He declined to collect them, even upon our request. And under Spivey, we, we followed the rule and then we brought our claim uh, directly against the party that owed um, under under the notes, so it's different. And I appreciate the court bringing that up, um, but it's different than the current set of facts. And I I was thinking about this on the way here. I think probably the way to most clearly explain this as the way it works in the real world is as follows: Sometimes when you have beneficiaries and certainly brothers and sisters involved, it gets a little cloudier. It's not cloudy to me, but I think when the world of creditors is much less cloudy. And Spivey refers to creditors. Creditors can bring these claims. So let's say we have a situation where we have a creditor that's owed $100,000 from an estate. Let's say that estate has no assets, but it holds a promissory note. Promissory note is worth $300,000. Executor could very easily say, look guys, I don't have any money to hire a lawyer to go collect this. I'm not going to go do that. I think that's reasonable. So I know you've written a letter to me wanting me to do it, and I'm just not going to go do that. That's reasonable. It happens all the time. But then that creditor would have the right under Spivey because they've made a demand. Uh, there's been a decline to then spend his own money, his own resources, the creditors, or it, corporation, whatever it may be, resources to go collect on that $300,000 note, $300, note. Now, under that scenario, yes, you have to name the executor. You, but you have the right to go collect that, okay? And in the event that they're successful, well, that money comes into the estate and then it's handled under the will. This is standard estate administration practice. There is nothing different about this case 
um, uh, than, than what I just explained to you, than what is done every day. Now, as it relates to spiving, I do want to uh, reference um, what Mr. Dale brought up with regard to what he says is the holding. Um, and he repeatedly said that the order on summary judgment was an order saying don't collect the debt. The order on summary judgment doesn't say that anywhere. All it does is, is grant summary judgment as to Doug Goins. We had no objection to that because we knew that he was under the jurisdiction of the court. He had been sued. He had been uh, served. Uh, summons had been issued. He's now a nominal party. It was almost music to our ears. Why? Because he's hiring an attorney spending estate money that's coming out of the inheritance. We don't need him to be involved in this fight. Okay? And it's really not a fight with him at all. He's a fiduciary. He has to do right by my client and by the other beneficiary. So, fine, we'll proceed forward. Now, with regard to move on from the order. What does paragraph four refer to then if it's not about her motion for summary judgment becoming moot? What, what else was pending at that time that we could, you know, wink and a nod, look at and say, this is what the trial court was, was saying was moot? I, I can only speculate, but uh, the speculation in good faith and in all candor to your honor, he probably was referring to her motion for summary judgment. Probably was. But then she withdrew it on her own accord. And he entered an order indicating what his intent was and these, that these matters need to go to trial. So I don't know what he meant because it wasn't clarified, but certainly the scheduling order and notice provided us further clarification for what he, as the judge, who had heard these matters before, intended going forward. Which, yes, Your Honor. Ever, was the motion to dismiss by Douglas Goins addressed in the summary judgment, or was that still alive as well? Because if I'm recalling correctly, in Douglas Goins' answer, there was a motion to dismiss that I don't think was addressed in the Right. I don't. So that is, is that potentially an additional motion that this judge would have had to address at some point with Douglas Gold? Because I don't recall I, that being addressed in the summary judgment. Right. I, I don't think it was specifically addressed. I don't think it was. No could that have been addressed by line four? In it, it could have been. It could have been. I, I, I don't know, Judge. I, I hate to speculate about what. Judge Wilson meant. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to call him up and have ex parte with him and ask him what, what you meant. <laughs> but be, be that as it may. Uh, yes, thank you, Judge. So, um, as it relates to Spivey, I do. Let me ask you. This. Yes, Your Honor. Would line four address that motion if it was an additional motion that, since it's his order, we're not speculating, but that seems to be a blanket order for Douglas Goins. For Douglas Goins, yes. So if there was a motion to dismiss that was not addressed in the summary judgment, line four seems to would have addressed that motion as it came to Douglas Goins. Seems to have resolved it and I, I don't know. Wasn't any further uh, right. hearing right. as it pertains to Douglas Goins on Correct. 
Correct. And I don't know if Your Honor is concerned about the court going forward with a trial with a pending 12B, but that is, I would, I don't think that's an issue. And I think that this, this uh, paragraph four would have resolved that. Moreover, that issue has not been addressed at all or brought up at all in the brief. So I don't think that it, it's an issue for the appellant in any, in any, uh, in any regard. So as it relates to Mr. Dale bringing up the, the, what he considers the holding to be in the Spivey uh, case, and I, and I quote, um, as he quoted, we are not inclined to relax the rule further so as to permit the next of kin to institute a suit to collect assets from a third party during the course of an apparently orderly administration. Well, we know exactly why the court said that because that's what the party did here. The party brought an action against a third party to collect directly, okay, and did not follow the three requirements of Spivey. That's why it was dismissed. But our Supreme Court in Spivey, and it's been good law since 1963, specifically indicates that if a debt is due a decedent, it, it can be collected only by its administrator. But there, of course, uh, to this general rule, however, there are certain exceptions. If the administrator has refused to bring the action to collect the assets, semicolon, if there's collusion, semicolon, or if there's or if there's some other particular circumstance. It's not an and, it's any of those three. And we specifically have dealt with Spivey on multiple occasions before and, and, and frankly have never been dismissed on a Spivey issue because we followed this law with regard to this and we did that uh, in this case. Moving forward in Spivey, the, the court even deals with this on page three of five as I'm reading it the better, and, and I quote, the better and more orderly procedure is for the next of kin to bring an action only if the administrator refuses to do so. The court in Spivey indicates that that's the right procedure in Spivey. You bring the action against the next of kin, but you have to give the opportunity to the administrator first. If they don't do it, you have the right to do it. It's just like the scenario that I laid out with regard to the creditor. Creditors aren't in a situation where they're at the mercy of an executor as to whether they're going to proceed forward or not. If the creditor wants to spend their own money to be a plaintiff in an action to collect for an estate so they can, be, uh, uh, so they can recover what's due to them from the, uh, from the estate, that's what they do. It's logical. It's very, and you don't have to file a petition to revoke letters of the personal representative. Um, the the uh, Corey v. Woodbury case indicates that that is not something you have to do. You have this right instead. So <clears throat> I think that addresses Spivey. It's not a confusing issue, um, Your Honors. Uh, it is something that is dealt with on a on a a daily basis, weekly basis in a state administration. And yes. Cases get dismissed that are brought incorrectly with regard to this because they don't allege collusion or they don't make a demand and get a denial or there's no peculiar circumstance, whatever the court, I guess the court one day will maybe define that for us. Um, but that happens. But in this case, absolutely not. And that was considered on a 12B6 earlier in the case. I know that's not before, Your Honor, but there was a 12B6 and that particular issue was brought up. So. Um, we, we have specifically, I, I don't really know how to further 
um, comply with a case that specifically indicates exactly what you have to do and there's an or in a semicolon semicolon or if you comply with any of those you have complied with the rule from the Supreme Court I, I, I don't know how you can interpret that any other way I've never interpreted it any other way I've never seen any other lawyer interpret it any other way so again it's not a difficult situation um, I think the final issue maybe we haven't touched on very much that, that I will briefly touch on, although I have, I think, nine and a half minutes, did Judge Rowe overrule Judge Wilson? Well, the unequivocal answer with regard to that is, is no, because Judge Rowe did not order any relief as to the party for which the dismissal had been granted. So that takes me back to the complaint, uh, J uh, Judge Gore where you asked me about what was remaining as it relates to Barbara and not Doug. So looking back at that, after paragraph three, which is the only paragraph for which we were seeking recovery um, or affirmative relief from Mr. Goins, number four states uh, with regard to supplemental relief as is necessary to put the declaration into the effect. That's the declaration, that's standard language when you have an action for declaratory um, relief. Next, to enter judgment against Barb, uh, defendant Barbara Olshner in favor of the decedent's estate in an amount to be proven at trial. That has nothing to do with Doug Goins. That's a judgment in favor of the estate. And Doug Goins, as a fiduciary, has to just let that happen. He can't defend against that because then he would, would be breaching his duty to the other uh, beneficiary and that is generally well really specifically what happened um, then we talk about 8% um, interest which is under 24-5 the statutory contract interest um, then we in the alternative a breach of contract but there's no argument in the case with regard to the statute of limitations or the evidence sufficient at the uh, at trial or any of those type things these are all technical arguments of spivey um, what the first and second order meant and whether Judge um, Rowe um, overruled another Superior Court judge, which we know you can't do. So on paragraph three as well, we know that, I'm sorry, not paragraph three, on issue three, did Judge Rowe overrule Judge Wilson? We know that um, Judge Wilson ordered the trial as to Barbara's claims. That's what he did said that those issues are to go forward and the only claims that were remaining were as to Barbara, not to Doug, they've been dismissed, not to Mr. Goins. Next, and Wilson, um, Judge Wilson only dismissed the claims as to Goins, repeating myself on that. Um, so obviously, uh, Judge Rowe did not overrule Judge Wilson because he did expressly what Judge Wilson directed him or whoever the Superior Court judge would be who presided over the trial to do, proceed forward to trial. To make sure I covered everything else since I have a little bit of time left. Again, I, I, as it relates to 28A, very briefly, I think I've made that clear. I'm, I'm reluctant to sit down, although I've pretty much covered everything with six minutes left because that just doesn't feel right for some reason. <laughs> but, <laughs> but to be that as it may, uh, or be that as it may, 
again, under 28A, I do agree that there is some discretion of personal representatives. Um, and, and again, we deal with this on a very, on a daily basis on dealing with the states, representing personal representatives, administrators, executors, and there is some discretion. But we don't have a situation where Mr. Goins entered a settlement agreement with Barbara. Um, we don't have any of that. That did not happen. I don't, I can't really say as I sit here today that that would end the rights under Spivey of, of an heir to go forward. I, I don't know that. That hasn't been an issue that's been brought up in this case. It's not an issue um, factually from an evidentiary standpoint in this case. So I haven't researched it, but a very interesting question. But well, I, I yes. guess my concern is, you know, just if we're drawing a line between abandoning, abandoning a claim and refusing a claim, or refusing to go after a claim, aren't we basically making abandoning a claim of, of no real importance? What, what, what importance is that language in the statute then? If you are abandoning a claim as the executor, okay. but it has no impact, what does it mean? Okay, all right. I think it means the same thing practically because an executor can decide, you know, we have a claim on this promissory note we can go collect on. I'm going to just abandon that claim. I'm not going to seek recovery of it. I don't, in my recollection, I don't have 28A right here to study that particular question. But in dealing with these type issues on a very frequent basis, because I, I do litigate uh, uh, fiduciary cases a lot, uh, more than any other type of cases, um, abandoning the claim on a routine basis is seen as we're just not going to collect on that claim. We're going to let that claim go. Now, I think compromising the claim, as I brought out, out you know, can be different because if there's going to be a compromise, normally there's going to be, you know, the debtor is going to pay something and that debtor is going to want what? A settlement agreement. You know, so that's different. That might cut the rights off right there. And I did bring up the practical issue of normally you get the beneficiaries to agree to that. But again, that's more of a CYA, as you say. Absolutely, um, that everything the executor or fiduciary has to do has to be within reason. So yes, there is going to be a reasonable standard. Now, that is why in the world of the state administration, we really do the best we can to get all of those beneficiaries, interested parties to sign off on whatever that may be. I would furthermore say that in situations where maybe you have a disgruntled heir, they're not going to sign off on anything for you because they don't like that mama only left them 10 bucks or whatever it may be, okay? I don't want to be too slang, but something like that. You have a pretty quick remedy because our 28A statutes also give you the right to file for declaratory relief or relief from the clerk. You can, you can go to the clerk 
pretty quickly and you can get some relief so that as it relates to an order by providing all the facts and circumstances. And the, as we know, the clerk of court is original jurisdiction in North Carolina for probate cases. So you can get kind of that stamp of approval with regard to what you're doing by having going through due process. Not a full-blown jury trial, not, you know, you know, not all of this, court of appeals, whatever it may be, it could be, but still you can get to the clerk pretty quickly on that. So you bring up a very practical issue in dealing with compromising claims, um, releasing claims, making the decision not to go after claims, and it could be a prudent business decision. Mr. Executor decides, look guys, I've got $3,000 left, and it's probably going to cost more than that to go after it. I can go ahead and give you $1,500 each and we can be done and that can be your inheritance or I can spend it on an attorney and maybe we can go after that money. That's, that's the kind of day-to-day, everyday type analysis that executors have to go through, um, hopefully with advice of good attorneys, you know, to help them not step, you know, kind of over the line. So um, I know I've got 50 seconds left. This case is not out of bounds at all. This case is directly in bounds. The only thing about it that raises a little question is why were there two orders? Spivey and the way it was done, very straightforward, every day done that way, expressly set forth as to what has to happen, and it did happen, okay? As it relates to the two orders, some confusion about that. Inconsequential, however, though because the court had the authority to recognize that the Goins claims, you don't have to go forward with those, we're gonna dismiss Mr. Goins. The rest of the claims, they're only as to Barbara, so, uh, we, and there's really just the one Goins claim, which is declaratory relief, uh, you may proceed forward you know, with regard to that. And he had the right to do that and sent the case to trial, and so the next Superior Court judge up heard the trial. Thank you, Your Honor. My friend on the other side has just said that the fact there's two orders is not very consequential here. In fact, it's, it's, it's very consequential here. You have an order telling the executor that he no longer is directed by the court to go collect an asset. And then you have a judgment that purports to say that there is an asset owed to the estate. That conflict makes this very consequential. And that's the problem with this theory they have under Spivey and the way the case was handled and the way it was resolved by Judge Wilson. The final judgment creates a conflict with the prior judgment of Judge uh, Wilson. Um, I, my friend on the other side also talks a lot about his experience with Spivey and all these things. I, that's not in the record. I don't think it's before the court. I've been litigating these kind of cases, 22, trust in the state's cases 22 years and never seen Spivey before. But I, again, I don't think any of that's material before the court today. I think what's important is this court has noted there is no case law interpreting Spivey as to the way the plaintiff claims it should be interpreted. Never. It's always been collusion or something else and specifically nothing since 28A was, was adopted. If, there were, if this Spivey claim could come regularly, as my friend on the other side argues, between siblings who don't agree, most certainly there would be cases up in this court if it was that common. 
and there just simply have not been, and I think that's meaningful. There is no ability in this state for Party A to sue Party B to recover for Party C, except in the shareholder derivative context. That's 55, there's a statute in Chapter 55, there's a statute in Chapter 55A. There's no such statute in 28A, and I would say that's intentional, as they were considering what to adopt for our state administration. Has there ever been a common law right or ability to do that in any other scenario? Or before the enactment of these statutes for um, shareholder derivative actions? I'm not aware of that ever existing in the estate context, except to the extent Spivey existed in the peculiar, extraordinary circumstances that exist. And so uh, the plaintiff is also reading into the word refusal here, right? I maintain that Spivey has a reading that, that is specific to you know, peculiar and extraordinary circumstances like the holding says at the end and like the totality of the case reads. There's a difference in my child telling me, no, I'm not going to clean my room, and my child saying, I'm refusing to clean my room. <laughs> There's a difference at times, right? And there can be refusals that are those extraordinary or peculiar circumstances, which is the word Spivey mentions. So there's a reason these things are different, and they are anomalies. And I would, to answer your Honor's question, this has not, to my knowledge, there's never been a statute that allows a beneficiary to sue the way the plaintiff contends ought to be here under any of the state administration statutes, to my knowledge. Well, that language in Spivey is absolutely, I don't disagree that you have to include the executor. Executor has to be there. And then go after the other parties if the executor Correct. And that's actually what the cases we cited between pages 16 and 18 of our brief cases where Spivey, in the unusual circumstances of embezzlement, collusion, and those types of things, has been seen. And that's, that's absolutely right. I don't disagree that the executor is a party to that. The, the other point I want to make, the, the plaintiffs just argued they didn't care about summary judgment as to the estate, as to Goins. That, that they fought it tooth and nail. That's just simply not accurate. And, and their prayer, again, they wanted Goins to go collect. They were asking the court to impose a burden on Goins to go collect. And so when Goins got out, they, they did not like that. <laughs> and so um, if you look at the judgment they, the, uh, my friend on the other side read to you, it says this money is owed to the estate. Goins is the estate. Goins getting out does not make a difference in terms of goings being different than the estate. Goings and the estate are one and the same. He stands for the estate. He is the personal representative. So when goings is out, there can be no recovery as to the estate. It just simply cannot happen. Um, Judge Gore, you asked about you know possibly other motions being in that mootness question. I, I would submit, I know this court sees summary judgment uh, cases come up all the time. I would, I would ask you to consider how often do you see courts tie up any motion to dismiss that might have been cited in an answer as being moot in that summary judgment order. You don't need to because if you get summary judgment, you're closing the issue. There's no issue that needs to be said moot as opposed to a different situation here. We had a separate motion for summary judgment that was, that was before the court. Um, and so I, I submit to you they're seeking to add a new claim here, create a new cause of action. I would ask this court not to create new law and we would ask the court to vacate the judgment. Thank you all for your arguments. Um, we will consider this case submitted and I uh, appreciate your time.